And Merry Christmas. Well, as you're probably aware, uh, Christmas is practically here. Like if you have uh, not begun Christmas shopping, like it's, it's game time. Okay, but not right now. Um, no online Christmas shopping while the preacher's preaching, um, unless you shop in for the preacher. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but man, I, I love, love Christmas, um, always look forward to this time of year, it's, it's definitely my favorite uh, season, I love the festivities, um, I love the lights, I love the trees, the decorations, the songs, uh, I love all of it. This season is definitely a joy filler uh, for me personally. And while this season is such a joy filler for many of you, um, I also realize that this season can be quite the opposite. Uh, Because these types of seasons can also remind us of loved ones that are no longer here. And so this season could be a reminder for you of what you no longer have, which can be really hard. And then for others of you, honestly, um, you're just dealing with some really heavy stuff right now. And so this season is, is anything but merry for you because you feel like you're in a pit and you're not quite sure how to get out. And so while Christmas is rightfully the season of of joy and peace and love, um, it can also be a season of deep sadness for many. And I recognize that, and so does our God. And we're going to see in our passage today in Isaiah chapter 9 that God is going to have something to say about your sadness. And I pray that it will give you great hope even as you grieve. Uh, For others of you... um, this Christmas season, honestly, uh, just, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to you. Um, you're like, what's up with all the singing and lights and giving of gifts uh, when, when the world is clearly broken? Like things are really messed up out there, yet we're just going to put on a smile and act like it's not. And if that's you, uh, to some level, you are absolutely right. And we're going to talk about that today too. Because the truth is... Um, Christmas can just be really confusing to a lot of people because Christmas is unique in that while it's a major Christian holiday, it's also a major secular holiday that is observed by millions upon millions of non-Christian people. There are millions of people in the world right now who are hearing Christ's exalting Christmas carols, and they may even know the words But they've never contemplated deeply on the meaning and significance of the very words that they sing. For example, the song, Hark the herald angels sing. I mean, we just sang it. And a lot of people know it. Like even even people that weren't raised in the church, like they know that song, they can sing the words. But as you think about the lyrics, like what are the angels harking about? Well, the next line, glory to the newborn king. Well, who is this king and why does he deserve glory? Well, because peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So what's this song saying? It's declaring that a new king has come, a good king, a king who's going to take away our sadness And he's going to bring peace to earth, a king who will fix the brokenness in our hearts, a king who will reconcile sinners to God. It's a song about the gospel, which is what this season is all about. And that's what we're going to talk about today. 
we're going to answer the question, does, does Christmas really have anything to offer us? Like, is it just about lights and gifts and songs and fluff? Or is it something that I can anchor my life into? And I'm going to argue the latter. I'm going to argue that if you can truly grasp the message of Christmas, it will change you from the inside out. It will provide for you a deep, satisfying joy and a real sense of hope that you can rest your life in. And so that's where we're going today. That's the message. But before we jump in and read our passage, I'd love to take a moment just to pray. Um, I'd love for you just to take a moment wherever you're at, whether you're here in person or whether you're online, just pray and say, God, would you teach me something through your word today? Just silently ask the Lord that. And if you would, go ahead and pray for the person next to you and silently ask that God would speak to them as well. And then if you would, pray that God would help me to speak boldly what his word declares. Well, Father, we pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's read together one of the most famous Christmas passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. It says this in verse 2. It says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Amen. Well, I love the imagery of verse 2, as it says that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. It's, it's actually where I got the title of my sermon. I pulled it from the NIV translation, which reads this way in the last part of verse 2. It says, to those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. I love that. In the midst of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You know, one of the first signs of the Christmas season is, is the appearance of lights, right? Lights on trees, lights on homes. I mean, everywhere you go, like lights are dazzling. Uh, for my young family, uh, one of our favorite traditions during this season is to drive around, right, and go look at Christmas lights. Uh, we love going to Windcrest. We love going to different neighborhoods, just looking at all the different light displays. 
And, uh, and my girls are young. I mean, they just soak it up. I mean, they're just oohing and on as we drive around. My one-year-old, this is like the first like, season where she's able to kind of contemplate what's going on. She's not very verbal yet, but she'll see these lights and she'll point and she'll go, ah, right, just gasp because they're beautiful. But the purpose of lights during this season, it's, it's not meant to just be solely for decoration. No, for the Christ follower, the lights are symbolic because a great light has dawned. You see, the story of Christmas begins with us sitting in the darkness, which is not hard for you to understand. I probably don't need to explain it to you. I don't need to remind to you that the world is a dark place. All you have to do is turn on the news or just peer into your own heart and you'll see that darkness. And one of the foundational truths of Christmas is that the world is indeed a dark place. That's actually the context in which these beautiful Christmas verses in Isaiah 9 are planted in. All you have to do is go back to the last few verses of Isaiah chapter 8, if you want to do that now, where it says this in verse 19. I'll read it to you. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. So what's going on here in Isaiah? Well, what's going on is God's people are struggling. They are going through a season of suffering. Uh, You can go back to the beginning of Isaiah chapter 7 and see that the people of Judah had received word that two nations near them had formed an alliance and and an attack was imminent. They probably felt similar to how Ukraine feels right now as Russia builds up their army on the border of Ukraine. And as a result, fear and anxiety had gripped the hearts of God's people Yet in the midst of this troubling time, God continually tells his people, he says, stay calm, stay calm. I've got this. Trust in me. But unfortunately, as we just read in chapter 8, rather than trusting God and leaning on his promises, they instead turn to the earth. As they look to their experts, their mystics, and their scholars for solutions. And church, nothing has changed. Just like Isaiah, the world is still dark, and people are still tempted to believe that we can somehow fix the darkness by our own intellect and our own innovations. That's the great deception of the world. If we just pull together, we can fix all of this brokenness. And if you listen closely, that's the message of our culture this Christmas season. If we all just come together and sing songs and love and accept one another, we can turn things around. That's the great lie of the world. We don't need to look any further than us for the cure of darkness. We have the resources we need in and of ourselves to fix the brokenness of our world. Uh, For some people, they believe that what's wrong with the world is social. 
like if we just fix the social systems in our society, we can find healing. Like if we just elect the right president, like if we could just get rid of this group of people, if we could just eliminate this type of person, things would get better. For others, it's education. They're like, you know, if we just educated people the right way, if we just pumped more resources into education, we could fix the issues that are in our world. For others, it's financial. They think if we could just eliminate poverty, if we could just find a way to to spread out the wealth across all classes, we'd get out of this darkness. And then for others, it's sexuality. Like if people could just freely express themselves sexually as they see fit, we'd get out of this dark judgmental fog that's in our society. Then on the other side of the spectrum... There are people that are like, no, the answer is none of those things. It's religion and discipline. Like if people could just be trained to live a more disciplined life, if they could just become more moral, if they could just follow the rules, then yes, we could overcome the darkness that's out there. Regardless of whatever the proposed solution is, the great deception of our world is we have what it takes in and of ourselves to fix all of life's problems. That's the secular message of Christmas. Let's just link arms and rally together because together we can overcome the darkness. But that is not the true message of Christmas. The biblical message of Christmas is things are really, really dark. They are really, really bad. And there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to fix the brokenness that's in our world and in our hearts. That's the message of Christmas as seen in Scripture. As Isaiah points out, we are a people walking in darkness and we live in darkness and there is nothing that we can do about it. Nevertheless, there is hope because a light has dawned. Isaiah says in the midst of gloom and darkness, there's hope because a great light has appeared. I want you to notice the manner in which this light has come. It did not come based off of discovery. People didn't find this light. They didn't seek out the light. No, the light came from outside of themselves. It shone on them from above. A light came from outside of us to benefit us, which is what you and I desperately need. Because we aren't going to be able to find the answers to life's greatest problems in a world of darkness. For everything this world offers will lead to a dead end. What you and I need is we need illumination. We need an external light from the outside to show us the way forward. And that's what God does in the midst of great darkness. He sends us a light from heaven to earth through a child, the promised Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who is Christ our Lord. In Luke chapter 1, Zacharias prophesies about this this baby to come, whom the virgin Mary would bore. And he says this about Jesus, who is yet to be born. He says in verses 78 through 79, he says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in the darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Did you catch uh, Zacharias' nickname for Jesus? 
It's one of my favorites. He calls Jesus, this baby to come, the sunrise. The sunrise. I love that. Is there chaos in your life right now? Do you feel like you're in the darkness? Well, look to the east. A great light has dawned. A sunrise has come. And his name is Jesus. He's the great light from heaven who came down to earth. He's the great light who has dawned. Jesus even refers to himself as the light. He says this in John 8, 12. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. The reason that Jesus calls himself the light is because light is paramount. Before you can decide to do anything else, you first need light. The first thing that I do in the morning before we make our girls breakfast is I turn on the light, Because it's needed in order to see clearly and perform tasks. You can hardly do anything productive apart from the light. That's what light does. Light gives us life. It causes growth and beauty. And that's what Jesus came to bring. It was Jesus who said, I have come to give you life and give it abundantly. Light also brings us security and it brings us comfort. Uh, My little girls, my daughter, uh, they still prefer to sleep with the closet light on. (laughs) The light keeps them calm. The light aids them not to fear, which is the catchphrase of the entire Bible, fear not. Jesus is our closet light during dark times. The light also exposes things for what they really are. And that's what Jesus does. He exposes the inner secrets of our hearts. He exposes the motives of every single action. He exposes the yearnings of our soul. Because in him, all truth is made known because he is the truth. And he's the answer to all of life's problems. Light is also needed to find our way in life. Uh, If our tech guys were, were really mean... Uh, they could turn the lights out in this sanctuary, which they're not going to do. And then I would stumble off the stage. And then you would stumble over each other trying to get out of here. Because we need light for a direction, for purpose, for clarity. And that's what Jesus came to bring. Light is also beautiful. Have you ever gone camping and you build a fire in order to make some s'mores? And then afterwards, you just stare at that fire for hours, right? It's captivating. Or if you woke up in the morning and got on the road, and all of a sudden you see this beautiful sunrise, and you just gaze at it, and you pull over, and you're like, I got to take a picture of that. You see, light is beautiful, and so is Jesus. Jesus is beautiful, and he comes to make things beautiful. And light also brings us joy. It brings us joy. In Alaska... Uh, There are certain times of year where they will only get a few hours of light a day. And it's no coincidence that Alaska has one of the highest rates of depression in the country. Because light is needed for joy. It was Jesus who said in John 15, he said, I have come so that your joy may be complete. St. Augustine said in his book, Confessions, he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. God is the only one who can give us the satisfaction that our hearts are yearning for. And in order to find this satisfaction, we need light from God. And that's why Jesus came, to give us joy. 
to give us the satisfaction and fulfillment that our hearts are yearning for. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, Isaiah talks about this. He says, this great light to come will bring his people victory in gladness. In verse 3, it says, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of the harvest, as, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For an agricultural society, there is no greater joy than that of the harvest. For a soldier, there is no greater joy than that of a finished battle where they get to come home alive to their friends and family. God tells his people in the midst of fear and anxiety, he says, fear not, a victory is coming. A harvest is about to be enjoyed. A victory's spoil is drawing near. And then in verse 4, Isaiah mentions the yoke, the staff, and the rod. And these were images of oppression. And God tells his people, he says, listen, I see your suffering. I see the hard times that you're in. But victory's on the horizon, so press on. Victory's coming. And then in verse 5, Isaiah talks about a day in the future where wars will, will cease as God will destroy all of his people's vices of fear. And the question for us is like, okay, what does this mean like for me? Like how is victory going to come? Like some of you are listening right now and you're like, Jason, like I'm hurting. Like I'm, I'm really struggling right now. So what does this mean for me? How is this great light going to dawn? Well, look at verse 6. It says this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. So what this is saying is this child, this baby to be born, is going to rule, and he is going to reign over God's people, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Don't miss the parallel to verse 4 where God promised to break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. Remember, the people of God in Isaiah are being oppressed by evil people who did not have their best interests in mind. The context of Isaiah is this. There is political instability and widespread anxiety. Let me say that again. The context of Isaiah is there's political instability and there's widespread anxiety. Does that sound familiar? Sounds a lot like the past two years, doesn't it? And what we are feeling currently today has been felt consistently all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the Bible. The people of God are crying out for political stability. They are crying out for leaders to lead the right way, for justice and righteousness to prevail so that peace would come. And what Isaiah prophesies is he says this. He says, a day is coming where a child will be born who will one day do just that. A day is coming when the government will rest on his shoulders and he will lead a kingdom that will uphold justice and righteousness. And some of you are like, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen? About five years ago, uh, during my first year on staff here at Wayside, um, I joined a basketball league, a rec league down the road at the JCC uh, with my brother. Um, pretty competitive league. 
a um, bunch of guys who wanted to prove that they still could ball, okay? And, uh, and so there were paid refs okay, at these games. And I remember this one particular game. Um, I was dribbling down the court. I crossed over a guy. I was heading towards the basket for a layup that I thought I was about to score. And I heard a whistle. And so I stopped. I look over at the ref and the ref's doing this. Which means you're traveling. You didn't dribble when you're supposed to have dribbled. Therefore, this doesn't count. Give the ball to the other team. Uh, well, I didn't agree with the call. Okay? Um, I was like, come on, ref. Like, I didn't travel, and I was trying to justify my case to him. And he wasn't having any of it. He was just like, nope, too bad. Okay? And so finally, when I accepted my fate and realized that was going to be the call, I threw the ball back to the ref. Unfortunately, the ref wasn't looking, okay? And so the ball hits him. And he then looks at me with this, this scary look on his face, and he gives me another signal, and he does this. Boom! Which means technical foul, son. One more of those, and you get kicked out of the game, okay? Um, and so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I go up to the ref, and I'm like, listen, ref, I didn't mean to do it. I thought you were looking. I was just trying to pass you the ball. Once again, he was having none of it. I said, listen, I'm a pastor, okay? Like, <laughs> I work at Wayside. I'm a good guy, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and eventually, I was like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to confess this to Pastor Roger, um, <laughs> which, I, which I never did, okay? So, <laughs> so pa- Pastor, I got a technical foul. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you, uh, there is confusion during the game over the call that was made. Well, who was right? Was the ref right or was Jason right? Well, I guess we'll find out in heaven one day. <laughs> but church, if you listen to the cries of our culture right now, there's confusion over the calls that are being made. There are cries over injustice and equality. There's distrust of leadership. There is confusion on whether those in charge are making decisions based off of selfish gain or if they're truly making decisions based off of our best interests. And this is nothing new. But there is a day coming, church, when Jesus is going to come back to earth and he's going to sit on the throne of David and there will be no more confusion over the calls that are being made. And he is going to call evil, evil, and he is going to call good, good. And when that great light dawns, justice will prevail. No more power grabs, no more politicking, no more unfulfilled promises, no more injustice, no more oppression, no, just perfect righteousness, which will lead to perfect peace, and it will last for all eternity. That's what Christmas promises us, that the light who dawned in the manger 2,000 years ago will once more dawn again, and when he does... He's going to make all things right. Amen? I want to end our time by just briefly looking at the four names attributed to Jesus in verse 6. I know a lot of you probably got Christmas cards with Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 on them, just beautiful verses. But in the middle of those verses are a string of four couplets that beautifully merge Jesus' deity and his humanity. And what I want to do is I just want to touch on each of those real quick as we end our time. Let's look at it together. 
The first name attributed to Jesus in these verses is Wonderful Counselor. I love that. The word wonderful in the Hebrew is a term that highlights the wondrous signs, the supernatural works that would authenticate the deity of Christ, which we read about all throughout the Gospels. And Jesus, he performed amazing miracles, but he was much more than just a miracle worker. He was a counselor. He was a counselor. And good counselors point people back to truth. They care for people's souls. They help people to become more emotionally healthy, which often means uncovering like deep heart pain. And that's what Jesus came to earth for. That's what he desires most from us. He wants our hearts. He wants to uncover our greatest longings, our deepest fears. In church, he will not relent until he has unveiled every part of us because his intention is to transform every fiber of our being. And the best counselors, the best ones, are those who have walked in our shoes. When you're going through something difficult, it's wise to turn to someone who has been down that same path, someone who can empathize with what you're going through. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Listen, if, if Jesus, if he was truly born of a poor young mother in a podunk town in a smelly old stable where he would later grow up in a community that would ultimately reject, mock, and kill him, if that's the case, then Jesus intimately knows what suffering looks like. He knows. He knows what it feels like to be abandoned by friends and family, to be crushed by injustice, to cry tears of deep agony. So if that's you, Jesus gets it. He knows exactly what you're going through. And that's why when we pray to him, when you talk to him, you can come to him openly because he fully understands everything that you're going through and he possesses all of the answers to your problems because he's the wonderful counselor. Yeah, we see in this text, he's also the mighty God. He's the mighty God. Uh, there are many people who have proclaimed that Jesus was an incredible man, that he was an inspiring teacher, an intriguing individual. And while he was all of those things, he was also so much more because the things in which Jesus proclaimed and asserted while he was here on this earth really only allow for two responses. To sum up C.S. Lewis's argument after reviewing the words and works of Jesus, he concludes that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. And if the baby born in Bethlehem was mighty God, then we have no choice but to serve him completely. And if he's mighty God, who's also wonderful counselor, then it is for our benefit and it is for our joy to serve him. But church, if he's the mighty God, then he's stronger than any of our problems. Meaning whatever you're going through, he can handle it. He can bear the weight and his knees will not buckle. He proved that on the cross. 
He took every act of injustice, every ounce of evil, every sin that you and I have ever committed, and he bore the weight of all of that. He bore the weight of all of it while he's up on that cross. And when he rose from the dead, he declared victory over all them things. Because there's nothing that our God cannot overcome. He is the mighty God. And this mighty God is also the eternal Father. Which is an interesting description for Jesus because he's often referred to and known as the eternal Son of God. And we know in the triune Godhead, you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. And so this description of Jesus is unique. It's not one that is attributed to him all that often. Yet when you read the Gospels, you'll often see Jesus refer to other people affectionately as sons and daughters. In Matthew 9, 2, when some people brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus, Jesus said to the paralytic, he said, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. In Mark 5, verse 34, when a sick and unclean woman came to Jesus in faith and she touched his garment, Jesus responded to her and he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Jesus loves us like an affectionate father, church, and he's going to do so for all eternity. And lastly, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. That's why Jesus came. That was his mission. That was his final goal. In John 14, 27, Jesus tells his people, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. That's who Jesus is. That's what he does. He brings us peace because he's characterized by peace. And when he comes back, he is going to set up a kingdom of peace that will last for all eternity. For those that long for his appearing, peace is coming. It's coming, church. And that's what we're all waiting for, right? At the end of the day, I think that's what we would all say. Like, what we want is peace. We want peace in our own hearts, peace with ourselves, peace with other people, and peace with God. And that's what Jesus came to bring. He is the only one who can grant us the eternal peace that our hearts have always been yearning for because he is the Prince of Peace. He's the God-man. He's the baby of Bethlehem, Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are like, Jason, um, I don't have that kind of peace. I've never experienced that kind of peace. And so... What do I do? If that's what Jesus came to bring, then how do I attain that? If he truly is the great light who has dawned, if he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace, like how do I get what he offers? Well, go back to the beginning of verse 6 and you'll find your answer. I'll read it again. It says this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. I want you to notice here that this child who came, he came as a gift. This son was given to us. There's nothing that we do to get what he offers. You don't earn this gift. It can only be received. It's granted because of grace. And the way that we receive this gift is by trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ rather than our own. To receive what Jesus offers, we have to deny our self-sufficiency and we have to trust in him completely for the salvation of our sins. Back when I used to coach at a public school, 
uh, me and this other coach, uh, we used to lead an FCA Bible study together. And I remember at this one Bible study, the other coach shared a story about a group who went to Colorado on a guided uh, whitewater rafting trip. And he says that while the group was, was on these rapids, they had this guide who was sitting in the back. And they got to a part where it was pretty rough. And one of the guys in the group, he, he fell off the boat, fell off the raft, and he was in the water. And the whole group started freaking out. They're like, what are we going to do? Like, it's, it's really choppy. They looked to the guide. And then they looked to the man who was in the water, and he was just frantically swimming, trying to get back to the boat. And then everybody was looking at the, the expert, the guide. They said, are you going to do something? Like, do something. He just stood there. And he didn't do anything. He just watched the man struggle in the water, trying to get back to the boat. And finally, after what seemed to be an eternity, the man stopped fighting and he started floating to the top of the water. And at that moment, the expert guide jumped in, he swooped in, he grabbed the man, he threw him back on to the raft. And the man got onto the raft, he coughed up some water, he was shook, but he was alive. And afterwards, the group asked the guide, they said, what took you so long? Why didn't you intervene sooner? And the guide responded, he said, if I would have gone in sooner, there's a good chance that we would have both drowned because of the man's desperate self-efforts to survive. In order to save the man, I needed him first to surrender his ability to save himself. And church, that's the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is we are so lost, we are so broken that we don't have the answers to fix ourselves or our world. We are so broken that we needed God to do what only he could do. And he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. And he rose from the, the grave and he did all of that because of grace. And that is our only hope. And in order to receive, in order to receive what Jesus came to bring, you've got to surrender. You've got to lay down your ability to save yourself. And you've got to trust in him completely. And for some of you, this Christmas season, you've never done that. And I'm going to give you an opportunity here in a moment to do that right now. To own your sin, to admit you're a sinner, and to give up control of being able to save yourself so that you can trust in Christ completely for the salvation of your sins. If you'll do that, there's eternal life for you. And then let me remind the rest of you that surrender never ends. While there is eternity, once we believe in Jesus, there's nothing more we got to do. But for the rest of our life, God will continually put us in situations where we're going to have to surrender and stop fighting. And for some of y'all, he's doing that with you right now. And he's saying, are you going to let me in? Are you going to keep trying to just slam your head against the wall, doing it yourself? Or are you going to let me do it? And I don't know who I'm talking to this morning. But for some of you, once again this morning, you just need to surrender this Christmas and receive the grace that you've been granted through Jesus. And you need to obey the scriptures, whatever God is calling you to do. And surrender. Because that's what our God asks of us. And he's worth it. Because he's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the eternal father. And he's the prince of peace. Let's pray. Well, Father God, if there's anybody here who's listened to this message and they're like, you know what? I, I, I have depended on myself my whole life, I have never known peace. I have never known God. And I pray that if there's anyone here right now, if there's anyone listening online, if that's them, I pray that you would come over them in a powerful way 
that would help them to realize that if they will own their sin and own their brokenness and trust completely in Christ and what he did on the cross and what he did in the resurrection, then they can be saved. New life can be theirs. As Romans 10.9 says, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. I pray they would do that right now. And God, for everybody else, I pray that we would continue to marvel, that we continue to marvel at the wondrous act, how God came near, that the God of heaven came to earth, he took on flesh in order to identify with us, in order to save us, to deliver us, the Messiah, the great deliverer, the Savior has come, and he's coming again, he's coming again, that great light has dawned and he will dawn again and we rest in that truth Lord come quickly Jesus we need you we pray all of this in the name of Jesus amen